Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. The scripture reading today is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14. You can find that uh, about in the middle of the Old Testament in your Bibles. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much refined gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can detect the errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If this is your first Sunday with us, again, I want to welcome you. And we are in the middle of a, a teaching series examining the five values that define our church. And you see them on the screen. By the way, we have turned that image into a magnet that you can put on your refrigerator or somewhere in your home to remind you of these values that we want to live by. So this will be a gift for anyone here at our church who would like to receive one. And in a few days, we'll have them here at the church and we'll be able to distribute them to you. But I want you to take a look at those values. Christ-like love, spirit-filled, joyful, scriptural, which is the one we're going to talk about here in a moment and then compassionate. And we are saying that if we adopt and embrace and practice these values, the light of Christ will shine brightly through us to each other, among our family members, and with those who are in our community. So I'd like to do two things this morning with the text that we just heard. I want to first of all make the case that Scripture is the chisel 
that God uses to shape our lives. And the second thing I want to do is to give you an example from the life of a person, not a perfect person, not a saint, but from a person who was shaped by Scripture. Now, what does it mean to be scriptural? Well, first, it's, it's more than just reading the Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. Peter just read the Scriptures. We read along with him. We read the Scriptures. I encouraged the children a few moments ago to read the Scriptures. But it is more. To be scriptural is to be more than just reading Scripture. That's just step number one. I think what the Lord is inviting all of us to do is to take the next step, go to the next level, and allow Scripture to impact our lives through our obedience to it. Now, that's taking it to a whole different level. And I could have chosen Psalm 1 because Psalm 1 talks about that. I could have chosen Psalm 119, but I decided to choose Psalm 19 for several reasons. For number one, C.S. Lewis wrote a little book on the Psalms, and he said this about Psalm 19. He says it's one of the greatest poems in the Psalms and one of the world's greatest lyrics. I chose Psalm 19 because it, is, it has rich theology about the nature of God, and I chose Psalm 19 because it explains how God speaks to us through a big book, and a little book. And the, the big book, of course, if you read verses 1 through 6, the big book through which God speaks to us is the universe. You look at the heavens, you look at the earth, you look through a telescope, you look at the stars, and people for millennia have been asking the question, who created those things? How did they get there? And many conclude that there has to be a designer. There has to be someone bigger than all of us who made this magnificent world and universe. And Psalm 19 declares that, that the Lord God made them all. But then there is a little book. There's a little book that is just as powerful and even more specific than the big book. The big book gives us broad general information and revelation about God, but the little book, the Bible, gives us the details. For example, who is God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? What is our purpose on the earth? What happens when we die? What does it mean to live a life of holiness? Who is Jesus? How do we find forgiveness for our sins? What is God doing about the injustice and the evil that is on the earth? The big book of the universe doesn't give us any information about those things. But you read the little book, and many things, not everything, many things, the essential things that lead to life, that lead to hope, that lead to salvation, those things become clear. And so a community that is shaped by Scripture, holds to a higher truth that eclipses that community's views and their feelings and their opinions. And because God's truth is higher than our truth, God's ways are, are, are higher than our ways, God's thoughts, I mean, what God has given to us, it eclipses everything that you and I could ever think or imagine or dream of. 
It means then that when we immerse ourselves in the words of God, it reshapes our lives. And that's what Psalm 19, 7 through 14 seems to be saying. Now, I want you to notice the impact that this, these words can have on your life. The psalmist, he, the psalmist is so uh, poetic when he talks about this. He says that the word of God or the law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It revives the soul. And some of us in this time, our souls need to be revived the law of the Lord, he says, has an impact because it is sure, it is reliable, and it makes us wise. We immerse ourselves in Scripture, the psalmist says, because it is right, and it brings joy to our hearts. We immerse ourselves in Scripture, the psalmist says, because it's clear. And some of you may say, well, Pastor Ray, you haven't read the parts that I've read. And that's true. Not everything about the Bible is easily understood, but I'm telling you, there is so much in the Bible that is clear. And it's those parts that are crystal clear that enlightens the eyes so that we can see. When we immerse ourselves in Scripture, you will find that it is pure, it's undefiled, and it endures forever. And Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that, that everything in heaven and on earth will pass away except God's Word. When we immerse ourselves in God's Word, we will find that it is true and that it is righteous altogether. And if you're still with me and you have your Bibles open and you're reading along with me, you'll notice in verses 11 through 14 that the servant of the Lord seems to be saying, he basically says, I'm in, I'm convinced. I want to order my steps according to your word. He says, Lord, keep back your servant from, from sinning. He says, I'm in. And if you look at verse 14, in first prayers, I want you to learn verse 14. And this is not just for preachers. Verse 14 is not for people that we pejoratively label as the holy rollers. Verse 14 is normative living. It's normative Christianity. When you buy into the call to be scriptural, you will find yourself yearning and saying these words. Let the words of my mouth, my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When you immerse yourself in God's word, you find yourself wanting to please the Lord. Let me give you an example of a life that's been shaped by Scripture. And I want to say it again, on this weekend where we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, we will not make the mistake of elevating him to a place of perfection. He is perfect now because the only way you become perfect is to die and leave this life and be with the Lord. But like you and like me, Martin Luther King was not a perfect man. But his life was definitely influenced and shaped by Scripture. For some time, I've been reading about the life of Dr. King. In fact, I would call myself a student of his writings. And when I was pastoring in Newcastle from the years 2000 to 2009, every year at this time, we would have special services, community-wide services at the First Presbyterian Church of Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And people would come, all kinds of people would come and 
celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And it was around that time that I started noticing something that I still pay attention to to this day. That during this time, the media rightly elevates and promotes the life and the legacy and the history of Dr. King and the civil rights struggle. And they, get, they check all the boxes. He was a great civil rights leader. We check that box. They'll often say he was unselfish. He was a martyr. He gave his life in the cause of freedom for black people. We'll check that box. And many will say not only for African Americans, but for all people, because he famously said that injustice, any, injustice anywhere is, is injustice, if it's happening here, it's happening anywhere. And so he stood up for what was right. He was a Nobel Peace Prize recipient. I mean, all of that is true, except that in the celebrations and the retelling of Dr. King's life, I find that there is a gap in the story. And you, you can watch the news reports today and tomorrow, and you'll see that they will overlook they overlook, and I'm not saying it's deliberate. I think it might just be the way we retell stories. But it overlooks how the church and scripture shaped his life and gave him a theological and a philosophical framework for understanding the brokenness and the hypocrisy of America, the hypocrisy of the churches of America, the laws of America, even the Constitution of America, when it says we hold these truths, these unalienable truths, that all men are created equal. And, and that's not true. When those founders wrote those words, they weren't talking about men like me and like you. Dr. King, King lifted up the hypocrisy of the citizenry of America with its white-only and black-only drinking fountains and sitting at the back of the bus and getting arrested for sitting up the front of the bus where a white person should be sitting. He exposed all of that hypocrisy. Dr. King often said, in the quiet recesses of my heart, I am fundamentally a clergyman, a Baptist preacher. And he says, the church has always been a second home for me as far back as I can remember I was in church every Sunday. And through the power of Scripture, the teachings of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we must add the influence of Mohandas Gandhi, his teachings on nonviolence. Dr. King moved the nation with the soul of a church and with his standing on Holy Scripture. And I'm willing to go on record this morning and say that if we fail to understand his identity as a follower of Jesus who believed in the word of God and a preacher of the gospel, we will not understand what fueled his life. And so with the time I have left, I want to explore how scripture gave him the moral framework to serve God under the shadow of racial hatred. And then I want to close with a challenge for all of us that if we are to be the people of God responsive to the issues of our time, then we must also be shaped by Scripture. So one of the challenges Dr. King had to fight was the temptation to hate, as he puts it in his autobiography, to hate white people. Dr. King was a child of the South. Yesterday, if he were alive, he would have been 93 years old. He lived during a time when 
when there was so much unevenness, black people in this country were hidden. You didn't see them anywhere except in lowly places of oppression. They weren't promoted on TV. You didn't see them in commercials. You didn't see them anywhere except in these positions where they, they were subjugated. And he tells the story that when I was about six years of age, from around the age of three, I had a white playmate about my age. We always felt free to play our, our childhood games together. He did not live in our community, no surprise there. But he was usually around every day. His father owned a store across the street from our home. And at the age of six, we both entered school. And he said, separate schools, of course. I remember how our friendship began to break as soon as we entered school. And this was not my desire, but his. The climax came when he told me one day that his father demanded, the boy's father demanded that he no longer play with that, that Martin Luther King. And Dr. King says, I'll never forget what a great shock this was for me. And I immediately asked my parents about the motive behind such a statement. When we were at the dinner table, we were discussing the situation. And for the first time, I was made aware of the existence of a race problem. I had never been conscious of it before. And as my parents discussed some of the tragedies that had resulted from this problem and some of the insults that they themselves had confronted on account of it, I was greatly shocked. And from that moment on, he said, I was determined to hate every white person. As I grew older and older, this feeling continued to grow. My parents would always tell me that I should not hate the white man, but that it was my duty as a Christian to love him. The question arose in my mind, how could I love a race of people who hated me and who had been responsible for breaking me up with one of my best childhood friends? And he said, this was the great question in my mind for a number of years. And during this period, I almost despaired, he said, of the power of love in solving social problems. I thought the only way we could solve our problem of segregation was through armed revolt. I felt that the Christian ethic of love was confined to individual relationships. I could not see how it could work in social conflict. And then he says this, Gandhi was probably the first person in history to live, to lift the love ethic of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. Love for Gandhi was a potent instrument for social and collective transformation. Dr. King wrote, it is better to be the recipient of violence Listen to this now. It's better to be the recipient of violence than the inflictor of it, since the latter only multiplies the existence of violence and bitterness in the universe, while the former may develop a sense of shame in the opponent and thereby bringing about a transformation and a change of heart. I want you to know Dr. King's decision to live by the the politics of the Sermon on the Mount, he paid a heavy price. He was stabbed by an insane woman. He was punched in the face several times as he marched and advocated for the rights of people of color. 
he was, he was hounded. They said that when Dr. King died and they looked at his heart, he had the heart of a 60-year-old man. On the night of January 30, 1956, his house in Montgomery, Alabama was bombed. He was at church, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, in a meeting, and the news came that his house had been bombed. And Dr. King said when he arrived at his house, many from the community, the police officers were already at his house, and a lot of his supporters were there. They were angry. They had their guns and their rifles, and they were, they were armed. They were looking for revenge. The mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, pointed his finger in Dr. King's face and said, you, it's your public statements that have created this atmosphere of violence. Dr. King then, once he surveyed what was happening, he walked back out onto the front, front porch and he asked the crowd to come to order. And he said, in less than a moment, there was complete silence and quietly I told them, I told them I was all right. My wife, and at that time he had just a baby girl, he said that we're all right. We believe in law and order. Don't get panicky. Don't do anything panicky at all. Don't get your weapons. And then he quotes Jesus. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what God said. We're not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. Love them. Let them know that you love them. And it was after he said those words that the anger melted from the crowd. People started weeping. They were clapping. They were praying. And then they went on home. The scriptures, moving him from hatred to love. And then when he was a student at Crozer Seminary in 1948 in New England, he confessed to a time when he began shedding, as he puts it, the conservative religious views of his father. All young men do that. He said, I was absolutely convinced of the natural goodness of man and the natural power of human reason. The basic change in my thinking came when I began to question the liberal doctrine of man. My thinking went through a state of transition. At one time, I found myself leaning toward a near-orthodox view of man. And at other times, he said, I found myself leaning toward a liberal view of man. The former leaning may root back to certain experiences that I had in the South with its vicious race problem. That made it very difficult to for me to believe in the essential goodness of man. And the more I observed the tragedies of history and man's shameful inclination to choose the low road, the more I came to see the depths and strength of sin. Liberalism's superficial optimism concerning human nature caused it to overlook the fact that reason is darkened by sin. The more I thought about human nature, the more I saw how tragic our, our, our inclination is for sin. And it causes us to use our minds to rationalize our actions. And for him, for Dr. King, racism was a sin. It was a stain on the pages of America's history its treatment of Native Americans and Africans. And, he's, and you ask why? And he says, here's the reason why. Because it violates one of the fundamental teachings in Scripture about what it means to be human. Psalm 8 says, you made us, human beings, to be a little lower than the angels, crowned with honor and glory. Genesis 1 said that God created us male and female 
in God's likeness and in God's image, he created them. The book of Acts says in, in Acts 17 that God made one human race. God made all the families of the earth from one blood. The scriptures helped him to see that something was fundamentally wrong with us. Dr. King often counseled as he spoke in all settings. He says there's the danger of white supremacy and it's hatred toward black people, but there's the, the, there's the threat of black supremacy and it's hatred toward white people. And he saw the reality in sin in all of us. We all have a sin problem. And I think the message of Psalm 19 is that the God that we worship is not a hidden God. God is not inert. God is not deaf. God is not dumb. God is not impassive. God is real. And you read the scriptures and you begin to discover that this God who created the heavens and the earth knows you and wants you to know him. And unlike any other religious thought in the whole world, the message of Christianity is this, that we, because of our human sin, cannot reach God. Instead, God, in love, through the person of Jesus, reaches to us. God speaks. God reveals his purposes to us. And I have longed to believe that Scripture, then, is indispensable to a life of devotion and faithful discipleship. Put it another way. Put it another way, brothers and sisters. Where there is a lack of Scripture in the human heart, we will never rise and hear the voice of the Master come and follow me. Instead, we will constantly hear the din of the world telling us that this is the way. Walk in it. This is what is good. This is what is right. Without Scripture, we will look at the darkness and call it light. Without scripture, we will look at the light and call it darkness. We will look at the good and call it evil. We will look at the evil and call it good. And without scripture, our world will be in a state of chaos. I think about Jesus when he answered the call. And he became the savior of the world. And in Luke chapter 4, and we heard it yesterday as our leaders gathered. We heard it in a wonderful devotion by one of our leaders from Isaiah 61. That when Jesus answered the call, what did he respond to? He responded to the words of Isaiah 61 as he heard that call. In Scripture, we learn that God is a missionary God. That God entered our space and time and confronted the evil of our world. In Scripture, we learn that God established his kingdom through Jesus and where did he do it? He did it in the very heart and the citadel of darkness. Isaiah says that the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And you, my brothers and sisters, we have to be blind and devoid of reason and logic to read the Bible and miss the message that God is serious about righteousness and God is serious about justice and God is doing something about the mess that our world is in. So I want you to look at the implications of what it means then to be a community that is scriptural, a scriptural church then doesn't worship the Bible. We have this big, wonderful Bible on the communion table. We don't, we don't, we don't bow to that book, but we do bow 
to the God of the book, a scriptural church, they do the following. And I want you to look at this. They accept the Bible as God's word. I know that's hard for some of us. They preach and teach, and that preaching and teaching is rooted in the Bible. They apply biblical precepts to their daily living. They turn to the Bible for guidance and wisdom. That's a scriptural church now. That's a scriptural people. And they recognize the importance of biblical literacy. When you look at our mission statement, you can understand why being a scriptural church is so critical to knowing Jesus and to loving him and serving him and making disciples and making a difference in our world. We're told by Paul that all scripture is inspired by God and it is useful for teaching. It's useful for reproof. It is useful for correction. It's useful for training in righteousness so that the man of God and the woman of God and every child of God who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. My brothers and sisters, the future of our church, the future of discipleship is dependent on whether or not we will increasingly become a community that is bounded and ordered by the Word of God. I hope this year you will join me in reading through the Bible. Let me know. Let me know. If you want to know, Lord, Pastor Ray, where do I start? I want to go deeper in Scripture. Where do I start? Just, just reach out. Send me an email. I have tons of resources I can give you. Reach out to any member of our staff. They have tons of resources that they can send you to get you started on your way. But there is no excuse to be an illiterate, a biblically illiterate Christian. No excuse whatsoever. In fact, it's a shame to be a Christian and to be illiterate of what God wants us to know and to do. How do we respond to the challenges of our world if we don't understand what God wants us to do? That is the question for us as we seek to be a biblical, scriptural community. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you, would you just say a prayer with me just now? So God, we pray the words of the psalmist, that the words that we speak and the thoughts that we think and the way we live our lives in the world would be acceptable in your sight. Teach us your word, O oh God, so that we may follow in your path. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.